The theme this year has been Feel the Passion, and today I want to start a new mini-series. As you know, we take a theme for the year, pray and see what God wants, and, and I felt strongly that the theme this year should be about passion. And I want to talk to you today, begin today, and for the next several weekends, how to have a breakthrough. And passion is the key to breakthroughs. It really is, whether that's in science or it's in technology or engineering. No matter what it is, always behind any breakthrough, whether it's medicine, whether it's aeronautics, no matter what that breakthrough may be about, trust me, it came about because somebody had passion that kept them pursuing a solution when others quit. If there ever will be a breakthrough and a, and a cure developed for cancer, it's not going to be the guy that just goes in and punches a time clock at 8 o'clock and leaves at 5. That's going to find it. It's going to be somebody with passion. If there's ever a cure for HIV, it will be someone that has passion. Anybody ever develop an alternative fuel where we are not held captive anymore by the Middle East, it will be because somebody has passion and pursues and investigates this until there is a breakthrough. Similarly, in the kingdom of God, those who have breakthroughs are people with passion. I'll just throw this statement out before I begin. Extraordinary acts of devotion and dedication move God extraordinarily. Just remember that because that is a kingdom principle that I'll talk about this morning. I want to look at our text, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 7. This is from Eugene Peterson's translation in conversational English. It's called The Message. And I'll just read the first two words. Seize life. I love that. Seize life. He didn't say wait until life seizes you. Because it will never happen like that. Seize life. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 15 through 19 contains an incredible story. Many of us do not realize that we have an interactive and cooperative role with God in determining how far we go toward fulfilling the plans that God has for us. God has plans. Whether they're fulfilled, God has plans for us. Whether they're fulfilled or not depends upon how passionate we are about seeing them fulfilled. Many people think that, you know, I, I've got to stop long enough because I realize there's some of you out there that you're deep thinkers when it comes to theology. And some of us have been brought up with questions in our minds like, what is the sovereignty of God? Does God, do I really participate in anything that God does in my life? Or hasn't that already been decided, you know, before I was ever born? Truth of the matter is God is entirely sovereign. But you need to remember this, that time is the parenthetical insertion into eternity that God created for the express purpose of manifesting what he in eternity has already decreed is going to happen. Now, before there was time, God lived in the eternal now. And because he is eternal and lives in eternity, Isaiah 50, uh, Isaiah, forgot the verse, thus saith the high and lofty one that, that inhabits eternity. That's God. God created time, but he already lives outside of time, meaning that this little bit of thing that he called time that he placed into eternity, encapsulated by a beginning and an end, just remember this, that God's already seen everything that's going to happen. His mind is already fulfilled. So 
God can say whenever something is arising, I already know how that's going to turn out because God makes his decision based on the fact that in eternity he already knows what's going to happen. But within time, are you understanding this? We play an interactive and cooperative role with God in fulfilling what his purposes are. And God, who has already seen what we do within time, then outside of time says this is what's going to happen on the basis of he's already seen us fulfill this before we were ever born. And you've got to wrap your mind around that. I realize that's too heavy for some folk. This early on Sunday morning, some of you say, I need another cup of coffee before I can get that far, you know. But with that in mind, watch this. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it, and Elisha put his hand on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. Now, that's very significant. East window. The glory of the Lord comes from the east. Tabernacle face to the east. When the Son of Man returns, he will come from the east. Lightning shining to the east, to the west, that the, how his return will be. Open the east window. We're looking now for God, okay? And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. This is after he put his hands on the king's hands, and they pulled the bow back together. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Now, this begs for and calls for an explanation. Up until this point, the king has recognized the prophet Elisha as someone who is in touch with the spirit world dimension. He's in contact with God. He is a prophet, a seer. So the king knows that Elijah is already peering into the supernatural. But now Elisha is about to die, and he's actually on his deathbed. The king goes, and Elisha is now even closer to that dimension than he was before during his earthly ministry when his rep was built as being a man of God. So when he walks in, the king comes in to mourn the fact that Elisha is about to pass and to show him respect. And Elisha said, you see that window open? It doesn't tell him what it's for. He said, take your, your bow and your arrows. Now put a notch and arrow into the string and pull the bow back and come stand by me. When he does, Elisha with his strength ebbing, leans up on an elbow, sits up, grabs the king's hand and then the other hand, and together they're now pulling this arrow back on this notched, this notched arrow on this bow, and, the king, and Elisha said, release it and shoot it through the window. So Elisha and the king together release the arrow through the window. Note the fact that up until this moment, Elisha has not told the king what any of this means. The king doesn't have a clue. All he knows is that this is a man that walks in the spirit realm. And so if he said it, there must be some prophetic significance attached to this. And then Elisha looks at him as that arrow goes flying through the window and said, that's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. That open window means God has just opened a window of opportunity for you. Somebody in the building needs to say, that's my window. Would you do that? That's my window. And that arrow is the supernatural involvement of God. God is releasing deliverance. Then he says, take your arrows and strike the ground, the arrows that remain. And the king strikes the ground three times. And the old prophet, who is weak, 
and about to die, literally gets upset. He gets ticked off. He gets mad. It doesn't say he's annoyed or irritated. It says he is angry. And he said, you should have hit the ground five or six times. Because you only hit the ground three times, he goes on to say this. The man of God was angry and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will only strike Syria three times. Now, the king should have had enough insight based upon the fact that even though he didn't know what all this meant when he first shot the arrow and the window was open, the prophets just told him, this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. That's your window of opportunity. When the prophet said, strike the ground with your arrows, he didn't know what that meant, but he should have had enough intensity or passion, especially when now, as a, the representative, the political leader and representative before heaven for the nation of Israel, the one responsible for its welfare, he should have been so passionate about that arrow flying through that window that he just got to wailing and beating on the ground till finally the prophet said, okay, that's enough, time out, cool, that's it. You can stop now. Instead, he just kind of ho-hum, like, lackadaisically, mediocre in his response, just kind of a mundane, you know, all right, I'll do it because you said do it kind of a, of a deal. And the reason the prophet got angry is because of a key that you need to understand that exists in the kingdom. And again, I want to say extraordinary acts of passion, dedication, or devotion move God extraordinarily. The king acted ordinary and mundane at a time when he should have showed great passion. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For, now watch this now, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Any school teachers in the building right now? Can I see your hands, please? Any, any of you? We have lots of teachers in the, there are some, okay. They will tell you that is a double negative. In English, that is not permitted. You use this kind of language in your class, they're going to, call your attention to the fact that it's erroneous usage of the language. It's not correct. It's not proper grammar. Hebrew, it's different. I'm going to show you why. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What we in English would say is we'd reverse that and say we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Now, why didn't they translate it that way since this is translated in English? but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Somebody shout and say, Amen. Amen. Father, speak today and let your word resonate in our hearts. Talk to us this morning. Transform us. And everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. The Bible is a book of breakthroughs. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible shares with us the incredible stories of ordinary men and women who, because of an extraordinary God, 
saw the impossible become reality over and over and over and over from page to page over and over again. Oftentimes, we think that breakthroughs are, as it were, beyond our grasp. The dictionary offers this as a, dic- uh, as a definition for a breakthrough. It is a military movement or advance all the way through and beyond an enemy's frontline defense. That is, the enemy sets up perimeter. It has, there's a, usually a demilitarized zone between two imposing armies. The enemy has set up and entrenched itself. And the fighting takes place and they're each trying to shove one another back. A breakthrough literally refers to the military term when you as an army break all the way through the front lines of the enemy and come out on the other side and their defenses are shattered. It is also an act or instance of removing or surpassing an obstruction or restriction such as overcoming a stalemate in negotiations. Uh, An example might be the president reported a breakthrough in the treaty negotiations today. Uh, It is also a significance or sudden advance, development, achievement, or increase, as in scientific knowledge or diplomacy, that removes a barrier to progress. For example, in travel, jet aviation and travel, there have been any number of breakthroughs. There was a breakthrough at Kitty Hawk when the Wright brothers flew the first powered aircraft. There was another breakthrough with the ability of uh, aeronautics to develop propeller-driven, jet, uh, propeller-driven engines, and many of us have flown on those prop planes. You know what I'm talking about. Another breakthrough was whenever they moved from prop engines to jet engines. I mean, I won't tell you how this thing is going. I was on a plane going to Amsterdam the other day, and we got up in a jet stream, and we were doing 750-some-odd miles an hour according ground speed according to if that thing was calibrated correctly, the screen that is in front of us. I'm, that is flying, I'm telling you. That is moving. A trip that normally took nine and a half hours, it took less than eight and more than seven. I don't remember how much it was because I confess I sleep as much as I can on a plane. But I woke up and I looked at that and I wondered, is that thing right? We, that's not all that far from the sound barrier. And I thought, my God, have mercy, you know. We were whistling. We got up there, and these, as you know, these jet streams are like rivers of air, and they're, they're flying. And we got in one of those with a strong tailwind pushing us, and we moved. I mean, we moved. And the breakthrough of jet engines brought transportation to another level. Now, how long would, did it take Christopher Columbus to get from Spain to the New World? Months. I did it in just a few hours. Now you get my point? That's a breakthrough. Amen. Whatever was impeding progress, we got right behind it. And, And in terms of a military breakthrough, anybody in this building ever feel like the enemy set up his line and doesn't want you to go any further? Uh huh. Any of you ever have any obstructions you face? opposition to you becoming what you're supposed to be or receiving from God what you're supposed to receive. Paul said it. Pray for me. There's a great and effectual door open and there are what many adversaries. 
Tell somebody, we've all got adversaries. Amen. Yes, we do. We've got adversaries. And then the word breakthrough can also be used as an adjective, such as a word that, such as constituting a breakthrough or engineered with breakthrough technology. Tonight, for example, if you're into that thing, I'm not. And um, that's the Academy Awards. My wife is. So tonight she'll go her way and I'll go mine. And and, uh, you know what I mean? But they will talk about breakthrough films. Breakthrough films. Amen. And, uh, you know, that's what a breakthrough is. To read the Bible is to literally read the words of life. I need you to know this. They were, these words that we read in the Bible are not like reading War and Peace or Charles Dickens or Gone with the Wind or anything. The words of the Bible contain the words of life. When we apply these, we experience the power that is re- resident within those words to overcome every situation. Life in the kingdom is about a child of God coming out of a world of darkness into the kingdom of God becoming God's son or daughter, and then applying the word that he learns in the kingdom of God to break through in other areas of his life where previously he did not have the skills or the ability to experience a breakthrough. Amen. That is to say that the line that used to hold him bound will not hold him bound if he can apply the principles contained in the word. The obstacles that used to stop him dead in his tracks will not be able to hinder him anymore. And as a result of that, you can break through to new dimensions. Amen. Just like the breakthrough from Kitty Hawk to the propeller-driven jet uh, modern uh, airplane to the jet engine airplane, The the breakthroughs can be that profound and that you can move from one dimension to another, not on the basis of how strong you are, but on the basis of the life that is contained in the principles of the Word of God that you come to understand. Two things must happen when you read God's Word. Number one, you must believe, and number two, you must obey. There's no power without both of those things taking place. One is not adequate. It requires the application of both. Amen. When applying the teachings of Scripture to your life, you should first believe and also expect to receive the promise of the Scripture. You you can't just have faith because faith without works is dead. That's what the Bible said. Wish I had an amen here this morning. On the other hand, you just can't be into obedience if you don't have any faith because that won't work either. I would beg to uh, point out to you that if there was anybody in biblical times that was obedient, for heaven knows it was the Pharisees. They obeyed the jot and the tittle and and all the other little stuff. And, you know, uh, they had all these laws and rules, but what they didn't have was faith. Amen. They had all their confidence within their human ability to be self-mortifying, uh, to be self, uh, uh, as it were, uh, humbling and in terms of submitting themselves to the word, but in terms of the power of the word. Uh-uh. And even Paul warned, the letter kills. It's a spirit that makes alive. And you can have the letter down pat, but you need some obedience mixed in with that faith. 
and you need some faith mixed in with the obedience. I wish somebody would just say hallelujah. And so while faith without works or obedience is dead, obedience without it, faith is also non-productive. So when applying the teachings of Scripture to your life, you should vo- both believe and obey and expect to receive the promises that the Word of God contains. You have to live with faith in your heart. Can somebody say amen? That is to say, no matter how dark circumstances in life may be, you always need to trust God. And on the other hand, the flip side of that is no matter how good things are going, are you not hearing me now? You need to trust God even in good times. You say, there's no need to trust God in good times. Oh, yeah, there's more need to trust God in good times than there is in bad times. Because you put your faith up on a shelf and start trusting government and insurance and jobs and the economy and all that gets yanked out from under you and you pull your rusty faith off the shelf then and wonder why it don't work. You hadn't hadn't exercised it in so long. You need to have faith even when times are good. And you see, the problem is is that so many people make promises they don't keep and, and there's so many things we're told in a cynical world where promises are made and broken, claims are often proven to be untrue. And in the middle of all of this, juxtaposition with all of those things that let us down is a God who is ever faithful to every word he has ever uttered. There is not one word that has come out of the mouth of God that cannot be depended upon or relied upon in the good times and the bad times. God doesn't lie. I just want you to know that God does not lie. He even said, am I a man that I should lie? You see, he knows that when you live in this world that you're made of stuff that is not perfect. Your basic building ingredients, your composition is flawed. But he said, I'm not made from what you're made from. I'm not a man. I don't lie. Amen. Speaking of people not telling the truth, uh, did you hear the one about Boudreaux and his, his dog, Duke? Boudreaux claimed that Duke was so smart that he had taught him how to count. And his friend Fontenot didn't believe a word of that. So Boudreaux said, Fontenot, you watch. Eh? Old Duke will done prove he know how to count. So Boudreaux sent Duke down to the bayou, and he said, you come on back, tell me what you see on that bayou there. Oh, Duke came back, barked three times, and Boudreaux turned with absolute confidence to Fontenot and said, Fontenot, there are three duck on that bayou. Duke done counted. He barked three times. There's three ducks swimming on that bayou. And Fontenot said, I don't believe that at all. And he said, we can just bring our, brought ourselves on down there, and we're going to take a look and see. And they get down there, and sure enough, three mallards swimming on the bayou. And so Fontenot said, I, I just think that's coincidence. That's what that is. And, and so Fontenot and Boudreaux says, I tell you what. He said, we're going to send him over to that, that stock pond over there, that cattle pond. Duke, you run over there and tell me what you done see and brought me back word, okay? And so Duke comes back and he barks one time. And Boudreaux says, see, Fontenot, there's one duck on that, that cattle pond. And, and Fontenot said, I don't believe that. He said, well, we'll just stroll over there and brought ourselves there. And we're going to take a look. And sure enough, there was one duck on that pond. 
And so Boudreaux said, now you convinced? And Fontenot just shook his head, and Boudreaux looked at old Duke, and he said, he still don't believe us. And he said, you know that those rice fields over past them woods? I want you to run over there and tell me what you see. And so about, that was quite a distance, so 10 minutes later, old Duke comes back, and he's got a stick in his mouth, and he's shaking his head like that every which direction, and just running in circles and circles. And, and Fontenot said, I knew that there was something wrong with that dog. That dog can't count. That dog crazy looking at him run, running around there shaking that stick. And just about that time, Boudreaux's son, Clovis, came up. And he said, Dad said, you and Mr. Fontenot need to go get y'all's guns. He said, I came by the rice field over there. There are more geese than you can done shake a stick at. Amen. <laughs> And old Duke, old Duke dropped the, the, the stick on the ground, tried it over and healed behind Boudreaux and just said, I don't know what it takes to convince some folk, but God keeps his word. God keeps his word and you need to know that, that when God opens his mouth, nothing but truth comes out of the word of God. If God's ever made a promise, he fulfills it. He keeps it. So first kingdom principle is simply this. God is in control. Don't ever think anything other than that. I don't care how upside down your circumstances may be, how inside out, how convoluted, how uh, difficult it is to understand, out of control they may be. I want you to know you may be out of control, the lawyer may be out of control, and the doctor may be out of control, the, it may be out of the control of the, of the banker, but there's somebody who's still in control, and that's God, amen, amen. Nahum 1 verses 3 through 4, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. Did you hear that? The Lord has his way in the tornado. You can't control tornadoes, but God can. And when you're in a storm that's turning you every which direction but loose, I want you to know there's still a God that knows how to speak a word and even the storm has to obey him. And so not only is God in control, a kingdom principle that you need to grasp here is this. If you can move God to act on your behalf, you can experience breakthroughs. Amen. You can't fix it, but God can. You need to hear what I'm saying. We often look for a, vertical, a horizontal connection between where we are and our problem. We look for a solution that can be found on this plane in which we live, this, this point in time and space. We look for answers here within our grasp. One of the most important things that I've ever learned in serving God, learned this at the knee of my grandmother, is sometimes there's not a connection between you and the solution to the problem. Sometimes the connection is between you and God and from God to the problem. Amen. You hear what I'm talking about. Amen. Oftentimes we look for a way to resolve it ourselves and we look for an earthly formula or solution or remedy. Old folk used to, and we don't hear this much anymore, old folk used to talk about, you, you got something you can't fix, pray through over it. 
pray through over it. In other words, pray until you touch God. Amen. Because we can move God to act on our behalf. Incredible things happen when you touch God. Human abilities and responses are limited anyway, but God's are not. So often what we do is, is we just keep looking for a solution on this level playing field that we call life that we think is level. It often isn't. And if we don't find one, then we throw up our hands in despair and despondency. And what God would like for us to know in the year 2014 is that human abilities at their very best, honed and developed to a state of perfection, are still limited and finite. His abilities are not. They are without limit. You don't deplete God. So you may have 100000 in your bank account and some tragedy come along that takes 75 and That leaves you twenty-five. God can put everything he's got on the line and never be diminished at the end of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? God can bet the house and never lose a single thing because he's so infinite in resources that God is not diminished by any problem he's ever encountered. No matter what it takes from him by way of resources, he is not subtracted from, not diminished or divided. You hear what I'm saying? He doesn't lose anything. When he gets through fixing your stuff, he's got as much left over as he did before you showed up on the scene. And hallelujah. That's because he is God. He is infinite in ability. And he is the consummate victor in every situation. God is unlimited. Somebody in the building say amen. This text that we found, and just stay with me because I'm working my way toward that place in, in Kings where the king struck the ground. But before I get there, a few things that I need to establish that will therefore help you understand my perspective. Just let me build my case. But Hebrews 4 and 15 employs a unique Hebraic linguistic or literary device that is used by Jewish people to emphasize a point, and that is when they use a double negative. Now, I've already said to you that any teacher of grammar will tell you that sentence in English is not considered to be correct. Now, I know that the book of Hebrews wasn't written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, but I also know it was written to Hebrews, and they kept this unique form of expression that is a part of their cultural identity, the way they look at life. They kept that, even though this is written in Greek. And therefore, when the translators translated this, what should have been said if they were translating this into proper King's English is we have an high priest which can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But because they understood this about the Jewish language and the Jewish people, they left it the way it was. And they said, double negative in all, we have not an high priest who cannot be touched. Now, I would draw you a slap on the wrist in the class I grew up, you know, was my, the teachers I had when I was young. But why is it left that way? It's because in Hebrew, it was a way of calling attention and underscoring, italicizing, uh, emboldening, uh, and, and, and making to stand out from its background and context the, the, the point that is being made. God, who is the penultimate communicator, the living word, 
word, literally the living word. The voice that spoke the world into existence and spoke again to Moses out of a burning bush purposely phrased it that way. According to Hebrew scholars, God first spoke the first language spoken in the universe when he said, let there be, he spoke Hebrew. And so while this is a common Hebraic cultural and literary device that is used and is considered to be proper grammar with them, it is not with us. The reason they left it is to point out that God is literally saying that our high priest is different from the high priest of the past. In the Old Testament era, the high priest could not be touched. You need to understand that. You didn't have the liberty to walk up and touch the high priest. Oh, no, 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 for heaven's sakes, no. That man is responsible for going before God on behalf of this nation. And if he has to go before God and you touch him and you, you know, you're unclean in some way ceremonially or in terms of the ritual aspects of the law, you touch him, you defile him, and then where's the nation at until he goes through the rite of purification again? We're, we're like a ship without someone at its helm, a rudder. You can't do that. You've got to be sure you don't touch the high priest. He was forbidden to even touch a dead body, even that of his own wife. Literally was forbidden to do that. Because God said your calling is so, so important. You are the point man for this nation. Even if your wife dies, don't you mourn and grieve over her. And don't you be carried and away and consumed in grief and fall all over her weeping and sobbing. You, you've got to maintain your ceremonial purity because at any moment, I may need somebody to stand before me and touch me for this nation. And Oh, somebody in the building needs to say hallelujah here. And so in the Old Testament... It was not permitted that you could touch a high priest. And that is why the writer here, whether it's Paul, Apollos, or Timothy, whoever is purposefully calling their attention to the discrepancy or the disparity between Old Testament practice and New Testament fulfillment, our high priest you can touch. Amen. Reminds me of when Jesus was on his way to resurrect Jairus' daughter. Anybody remember that story? A lady fought her way through the crowd for she said... If I can touch but the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. And the moment she touched him, knocking people out of the way. And then remember, there was a crowd around Jesus jostling him. And have you ever been to these streets and, and places in the far east? I mean, they're little narrow streets like in Jerusalem to this day. You wonder how they got hundreds of thousands of people down in that region because the streets are winding and narrow. And it was that way in every city. They didn't have cars that needed to navigate highways then. They, people walked. And this woman touched him. The streets were crowded. And when she did, Jesus stopped, pivoted on his heel, and said, who touched me? And the disciples looked at him. They were astonished and said, what do you mean, who touched you? You see all this crowd? I said, you don't understand. And he, they didn't even know who he was. Lord, that blows my mind. They, they called him master. They called him all. They, they didn't have a clue that he was actually God's high priest come in the, after the order of Melchizedek. I wish somebody in the building could hear what I'm saying. And they didn't understand who he was. No, they did not. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Who do you say I am? And they just kind of you know, stood there. Uh, nobody could really answer, but he was, he was the high priest forever after 
the order of Melchizedek when that woman touched him and Jesus stopped and said, somebody touch me. And they said, yeah, everybody's touching. No, 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 you don't understand. I felt virtue go out of me. And I felt my, I felt somebody touch me. And that didn't just mean healing went out of him. She was unclean ceremonially. And when she touched him, he discerned that his virtue, cleanliness, ritual cleanliness had just left him. But the difference in the Old Testament high priest and the one we have in the New Testament era is that shut the Old Testament high priest down. Jesus just kept right on trucking along being God manifest. Oh, hear what I'm saying. That is to say you cannot deplete, as I said a while ago, the inexhaustible riches of who he is. And I don't care what your need is. Oh, somebody in the building needs to shout yes. You got your back uh, backed up against the wall and you're all worried and frazzled and, you know, circumstances have you on your last nerve. You don't know what to do and you're all flustered and you don't know whether you're coming or going or upside down or inside out or what. And you're wondering, oh, can anybody help me? God said, I can do that and it won't take one thing away from me to help you either. I won't lose one thing when I touch you because, oh, somebody in the building needs to say, praise the Lord. And the benefits of touching God are literally life altering. I'm preaching this because I am convinced that many people in modern Christianity in today's world have not learned how to touch God. And the reason is, is because we've been taught to be passionless, be passionate about football, passionate about the Oscars. It's okay for somebody who wins an Oscar to go, woo, you know. And what's that gonna mean 100 years from now? You hear what I'm saying? But if somebody gets saved from sin and meets the creator of the universe, you're supposed to act like that's okay. My daughter was friends with somebody from Jackson, Mississippi, Lenita Wolf, uh, and uh, Lanny, and, um, and Lenita, and oh, there were a couple of girls, Lanny and Wolf's daughters, and, and they went to one time to, I forgot where it was, and, and Michael Jackson was there and he shook Lenita's hand. She wouldn't wash her hand for weeks. He touched my hand. It's turning ugly now. You better, you better watch. No, I can't. Uh -uh. We act like it's okay, you know, and to get excited about, about meeting certain people and and meeting particular individuals because of their status in life. But I'm talking about meeting God. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's a lack of passion that it made so many people incapable of connecting with God. When you touch God, notice the benefits. Number one, you are changed personally. You see, prayer not only changes things, it changes the one who's doing the praying. You hear what I, I, I'm trying to communicate? Prayer changes the prayer. That's right. Sometimes we want the circumstance change while we remain the same. 
But oftentimes what God wants to do is change you in the middle of the circumstance. Number two, your circumstance gets changed. When God steps into the middle of a situation, it cannot remain the same. I love that text in the Old Testament in Psalms. It said, what ailed you, O you see, that you fled? Ye waters that you were driven back. Ye hills that you skip like lambs and ye little hills like rams. And the answer was, this is the hill the Lord decided to sit in. God sat out on a hill and the hill started jumping around. And you expect me to keep still when God comes into the room and I'm, I'm sorry. You understand what I'm saying? When God steps into a circumstance, it changes me, but it changes the circumstance too. And assignments of the enemy are canceled when God shows up. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Every pit the enemy dug, he falls into it himself. Because God sends a spirit of confusion into the enemy. God is so awe-inspiring that to see him takes your ability to concentrate on anything else away. And the enemy has put together his well-devised, well-orchestrated plan to wreak havoc in your life. And God shows up. And one glance of his glory and majesty and the enemy has resorted. You hear what I'm saying right now? Enemy is powerless. Number four, miracles occur when you're in the presence of God. When you touch God, you step into the dimension of the supernatural. You step out of the realm of the ordinary into the extraordinary. You move from the realm where everything is managed by the laws that govern this physical universe to the realm where nothing is managed anymore by natural laws and anything can happen. Amen. One of the movies that's being considered for an Oscar, and I uh, saw it the other day on a plane. I don't watch many movies, but I did see this on the plane. Space has always fascinated me, and it's a movie, Gravity. And it's about an astronaut that gets lost out in space, unattached to their ship, and, and her struggle to survive, and uh, so forth. And, oh, boy, that gave me vertigo. <laughs> you know, like, I lean over a building, and it's like... And my stomach just shrinks. And uh, I recommend that for losing weight. If your stomach is getting that, just lean over. Your stomach will shrivel down to that big. I promise you it will. And, and, and you know, I, I love that whole thing. When you leave space, you're not held by the things that hold you here. You leave and go into space. Gravity doesn't hold you back. And and I remember years ago, whenever they first went out, those early pioneers and astronauts, and one of them remarked, he said, when you're out here in space, even your cookies float, amen. They're, they're little things they had on board to eat. That's the truth. Friend, you get in a different world when you're in outer space, amen. And when you step into the supernatural realm, the gravity of this natural world doesn't hold you anymore either. Number five, promotion and elevation take place. Enemies trying to hold you back. God just looks at him and says, get out of my way. I'm going to promote him anyhow. When you touch God, promotion doesn't come from the north or the south or the east or the west. God exalts who he desires to exalt. And, oh, hallelujah. 
Not only that, number six, blessings are released that are too numerous to count. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And number seven, destiny is fulfilled and divine purposes are accomplished. Because your destiny is too big for you to ever fulfill it or achieve it without his divine intervention. You need to know you on your best day cannot make happen what God wants to have happen in your life. He wants you to become an interactive, cooperative partner with him. And he wants you to learn, learn to lean on him. And he wants to make possible what isn't possible. Now, he fully expects us to do the possible part. So don't you sit back waiting on God to do everything. Amen? Oh, come on. Hallelujah. And finally, as a result of the other seven, number eight, your faith is increased as you see the faithfulness of what God and uh, of what God can bring and what he can do in your life. You know how faith really is built? It's whenever you weren't supposed to make it through something and you make it anyway because the Lord brings you out. You know, somebody can give you theory. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody can give you theory and hypotheses and, and they can give you conjecture and say, this is what I think. And I don't really care what you think when my back's against the wall. I want to know what does somebody know? And you understand what I mean? I want to know, can I, I depend on it? And I'm here to tell you that whenever you have come through some things that had it not been for the Lord who was on my side, now may Israel say, when you make it through the wilderness and you come out of slavery and, and you make it from the, from the depths and come out of the pits that the enemy had dug for you and, and you're you're, you're, you're still going strong anyway, in spite of everything the enemy tried to whisper in your ear. And even Job's friends told him, you, you need to give it up. Man. His wife said, why don't you curse God and die? Even some people close to you start, oh, you, you're just beyond help. You know? Amen. You're never beyond help as long as you can touch God. And do you hear what I'm saying? As long as you know how. That's why I'm here to tell you this is a year of breakthroughs for, for the people of Christian Tabernacle. God's going to do incredible things. I'm closing with this, but a final important kingdom principle, the one I began with earlier this evening. If you want God to do something extraordinary, don't just act ordinarily. Extraordinary acts of devotion or passion our dedication move God extraordinarily. Ordinary acts of devotion, passion, dedication, move God ordinarily. Amen. What am I trying to say? Am I saying that you merit or earn God's intervention in your life? No. But it's a story of this king. God has purposed what he wants to do. And he opens the window of deliverance of opportunity, puts his hands on yours and releases the arrow of his deliverance. But whether you manifest what God wants to have happen or not is determined by your passion. Come on, hit the ground with those arrows, king. And to his surprise, the prophet is angry. He's livid. He's shaking. 
you should have smitten the ground five or six times. Then you would have destroyed Syria and they never would have been a problem to Israel again. Just want to ask a question. Is there anybody here that would like to get rid of what you're going through once and for all? You'd like to fix your financial problem once and for all. Come on, help me out. Anybody want to conquer cancer once and for all, where it never comes down the street to where you live ever again? Anybody want to solve the problem of marital discord once and for all and say to the enemy, that trick won't work here anymore. We had a breakthrough and we touched God and God fixed it for us. I want to tell you how to do it. Act extraordinarily. Now remember, the king did not know what was going on when the prophet first said, open the window. Nor did he know what was going on when the king was instructed to pull the arrow back on the bowstring and point it to the window. Nor was he told what it meant when the prophet leaned up on his elbow, sat up, and put his fevered hands over the hands of the king as together they had that arrow held back and pointing out the window toward the east. He didn't know what any of it meant. But the moment that arrow was sent off that string and released, and the prophet said, the window is your opportunity. The arrow is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. The east, that's the glory of God. Now you take the arrows remaining and you beat the ground. That was enough. He should have had enough discernment right then. He should have started beating that ground just like, like that. I mean, just beating it every which way he could. And I, I mean, if it had been me, I'd still been beating on it. Until finally the king, the Elijah said, enough, time out, that's good. Who told him to act? Oh, but you don't understand. I'm the king. I've got dignity to be maintained. and I must act with aplomb. No, when you get serious, you don't care about aplomb and dignity and anything else. And that's what the lady with the issue of blood discovered. You don't worry about somebody's feelings. And Bartimaeus figured that out. And somebody may say it's not that kind of a party, but he cried so much the more, Jesus. Extraordinary acts of devotion move God extraordinarily. Stand with me. I want to talk to you about how to have a breakthrough next Sunday. Amen. Prayer counselors, come and join me if you would. I'll just, again, give you a little hint. Like the prophet did by explaining what the arrow and the windows and all of that meant, I'm giving you a hint, a clue. Passion is the key. You don't even get spiritual breakthroughs without passion. There's ever a breakthrough in the research that will conquer HIV or cancer. It will be because some researcher was passionate about it. And you know, usually those with passion are those that have been wounded by something. Come on, help me now. You know who's going to probably be the most devoted to finding a, research, a cure for cancer? It's going to be the person that lost his mother to breast cancer. Her mother. It's going to be the researcher that lost her dad to lung cancer. Somebody with some skin in the game. Somebody that has an investment. Somebody that a cure will bring meaning to them. Those are the ones who develop passion.